The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. Safety and security in children's and youth ministry. Why should you care? Why does it involve you? Why does it involve your church today? I would say concerns for kids spiritual-wise later on down the road. Right. Yeah, because this, if, if this is why they equate church with, why should they want to be involved with it? Well, I mean, I I care for the child, but I care because it makes our church more marketable for visit for guests. It is outside people coming. That's one of the things that we talk about, um, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. There are people in your church that are going to say, "I don't have kids in the youth ministry. I don't have kids in children's ministry. I don't teach. I don't volunteer. I really, if if you know, the only time I ever." Step foot in that area is where I have lost my sense of direction. I mean, they just, it's like, <laughs> so we know that. But if I ask anybody in your church today, do you want your church to grow? How many are you going to raise your hand? Yeah, everybody. And if you're honest, what is your preferred demographic that you want that growth to take place in? Families, Families with young children. Therefore, you have to care. Because the truth is, if you can't, today's parents have grown up with, they're the first generation that grew up with missing children's pictures on the milk cartons. You know, if you go to uh, Chick-fil-A now, they get their high chair tray. It used to be you'd have to like brush the crumbs out of it. You get it now and you've got a sanitary thing to wipe the table. You've got a plastic mat to put down. You know, I've uh, tried to buy car seats. Now that I moved close to my grandkids, I had to order car seats. And I said, can I not buy this cheap one? No, you can't buy this cheap one. You have to buy this one. And so, you know, instead of spending 40 bucks, I spent 100 bucks on car seats. You know, and still got inexpensive car seats. And because I know that if I want access to my grandkids, this is a hoop I'm going to jump. Your church, if you want access to families with young children, these are hoops you're going to have to jump. Now, that sounds kind of cold. I know it does. But for some folks, that's, what they're, that's how they're going to see it. Those of us who are involved in children's ministry, who love children's ministry, we will go, I mean, we would go through the, the lines den to protect these kids. We'll do whatever it takes. But for some folks, you may just need to present it in a different way. That this is a matter of not children's ministry, not youth ministry. This is an issue of um, outreach. And so this, these are things, steps that we need to take in our church. Now, for many churches, and it may be the truth in your church, there is a general attitude that we know everybody. Nobody needs to come to our church in 10 years. I know everybody and their grandkids. And so it can't happen at my church. But guess what? If you live in Johnston County, you know it can't happen in your church. Um, Because it happens and it happens again. There may be incidents in churches near you that I'm not aware of that maybe even didn't make the news or, or weren't reported. The police didn't get involved. But in the back of your mind, you may have a suspicion So, yes, it can happen at your church. So let's look at some of the statistics. This is from a compilation of Awana, Darkness to Light, and Rain. These are three organizations 
that deal with children's ministry uh, protection policies. It says that 33% of all girls and 20% of all boys will be abused by the age of 18. Can you imagine that? There's about 40 of us in the room here. So that would mean, how many, let's see, there's four, five, six, seven, eight, eight women here. Two to three out of this eight or nine women, the potential would be that they were abused. Guys, there's less, the percentage is less, but it's often because boys don't report. Often boys don't report until they're in their mid-30s when they begin to have children of their own and these memories come back and cause problems in their life. So that 20% of all boys is a little deceptive. 93% of children who are abused know their abuser. You know, for so many years, we, we did stranger danger. Stranger danger really only applies to about 7% of kids that are molested. Most of them know their molesters. 34% are estimated to be family members. 59% are acquaintances. That would be people like you. But only 7% are strangers. The next one, if you notice up here, is in red for a reason. I want you to remember this statistic. We're going to come back to it. Less than 40% of abuse is reported to police. And some more current, depending on what source you use, that's 30%. Sometimes it's less of abuses reported to police and less than 10%. And I have heard as low as 3% of that number results in a conviction. The only way you're going to get on the sex offenders registry list is to get convicted. So think about the number of people who are abusers who have not been called and convicted yet. So do you do background checks? Yes. But if that's the only thing you're relying on, you're really taking just a baby step in this process. Children are most vulnerable between the ages of 8 to 12. Think about how we parent 8 to 12-year-olds compared to how we parent preschoolers. We parent preschoolers, we watch everything they do, every stick they pick up, every cigarette butt they put in their mouth. We know it. But by 8 to 12, we're doing what we're supposed to do as parents. We're beginning to let them go play outside, go to sleepovers, go to scout meetings, whatever, where we're not there to supervise. So that makes them more vulnerable. It says Child Protective Services in North Carolina's DSS finds enough evidence to uh, prove a new claim of child sexual assault in the U.S. every nine minutes. So it's one of those things that it's very easy for us to pretend it doesn't exist. It's not something that may be part of your reality, your day-to-day reality, but it's out there and it exists. It exists in our churches and it exists in uh, youth organizations, sports camps. It happens everywhere and we have to be aware of it. Now, why we talked about it, millennial parents come to your church. They're going to expect excellence in facility and how you care for the kids and in the teaching. And they expect safe and secure environments for children. I have gone to churches recently to do uh, facility evaluations. That's one thing I do. And it's interesting when I go to a church that looks like a healthy church. I went to one recently and said, we have eight. There's a few chairs up here if you want them. I'm not contagious. I'm on antibiotic. But um, 
they said, we have eight babies in our church, but nobody will leave their babies in the nursery. And I walked in. I said, do y'all want truth? And uh, they said, yeah. I said, I wouldn't leave my baby here either. I mean, it was just a, it needed to be like napalmed and then start over. But parents come in with a sense of excellence. They want, didn't you, for your own kids, want the best that, that a church or any environment could provide? You wanted that for them. And they expect that when they bring, come to your church, they expect as excellent as your church can provide because that tells them that you have the children in your church are a priority and they want to know that coming in. Now, this is something that's been sort of an aha for me recently. We talk about policies. What are some common policy things that, that people adhere to in your church? What's the two rule? Two persons in a classroom. Ideally, those two people are not related by marriage because a husband and wife cannot be compelled to testify against each other in court. What's the rule that has six in it? Six-month rule. Somebody needs to attend your church for at least, or be a member of your church for at least six months before they have access to the children and youth in your church. All right. You want clear sight lines. People have locked the doors now. There's all these steps that we're taking, but people who are pedophiles, people who um, are seeking to have access to your kids know your policies. They know your rules. They know how to work your systems. First of all, they look to see if you have systems to protect kids, but they also know how to work them. And so what we're going to have to start doing as leaders is understanding their process. Their process to gain access to the children and youth in your church is called grooming. Grooming are, and, it's, and grooming is a crime. You can be charged with grooming. Grooming are intentional, and this is not in your handout. I'm sorry. It's, I added, or it may be later in the handout. In, Grooming is the intentional acts that are designed to gain the trust of the victim and their gatekeepers in order to sexually abuse the victim at a later time. So it's a process. Stranger danger, you think about that being where somebody's just going to snatch a child and hurt them. This is a process. These are people who are, who are trained and who are in it for the long haul. We cannot reduce a risk we do not understand or recognize. I know when I was a children's minister in local churches, I would go, I can't fix a problem that I, people would get upset about stuff. I can't fix a problem that I don't know exists. And if you told me you needed something done, usually by the next Sunday, if it was possible, I made it happen. But I couldn't fix it if I didn't know it, it existed. The same thing with this. If we don't recognize what a groomer is and how a groomer functions, they can work us and work our system because that's what they are masters at. Abusers go where barriers are lowest, and right now those low barriers are lowest in sports organizations and in churches. And there is no visual profile of an abuser. There could be somebody in this room who's an abuser, and we would never have a clue. There isn't a visual profile, but there is a behavioral profile. And so we're going to look at some of those things. When it talks about grooming the gatekeep, 
a gatekeeper is anybody who has access, who is the gatekeeper of kids. It can be the parents, it can be teachers, it can be coaches, it can be an organization. Anybody who has, um, who opens the gate to allow someone to have access to the children and youth in your ministry, those are gatekeepers. Now, one of the key things they do, they groom kids because they want access to hurt the kids, but they also groom parents and they groom the church or the organization. This is a huge thing for you to recognize, especially if you're a church leader, that they are going to groom you. You're going to have somebody who's going to come into your church and they, their goal, sole goal, is for you to think that they are trustworthy, kind, and helpful because their goal is to have trusted time alone with the children in your church or a child in your church. And they want it so that if an accusation is made, your first thought is, oh, no, they're so trustworthy, helpful, and kind, there's no way they could be a, they could be a pedophile. That's how they want you to see them. And so they'll be the one who volunteers to help set up chairs. They'll be the one who always uh, chaperones camp trips. Um, they're the ones who are just all making themselves indispensable. If they're working to build trust in a family, it's like, they're like one of our family. I don't know when this happened, but it's like I can't imagine doing something and them not being involved in our life. There's a video, um, Ministry Safe Offers, of a man who talks talks candidly. He's a, a multiple um, molester, molested multiple children. And he talked about sitting, riding in the back seat with the kids, molesting kids while the parents are in the front seat. They're slick. He said, people think I'm just trying to be helpful and kind. He said, no. My whole purpose was for them to open the gate so I had access to their kids. Now, the trouble is, you've got people in your church right now, you can name a handful of people that you know that are trustworthy, helpful, and kind, and they're as innocent as the day is long. But that's one of the first things you want to look at is people who come into your organization and immediately set themselves up to for you to think about them this way. But there's other things that they're going to do. They're going to spend time with children, with youth. They're looking for sort of the weakest link. Everybody knows there's a kid that doesn't fit in, a kid who has a single-parent uh, single family dysfunctional family, an absentee uh, family, a, a child who just doesn't fit in. A child, maybe an older child who's already using alcohol, drugs, or uh, is exposed to porn. They're already sort of have set themselves out apart from the group. They already have a secret. Those groomers look for kids like that. Kids who they know that they can cull, or cull away from the group at large. So that's who they're going to look for. They're going to select them, and they're going to go to work on their parents, and they're going to go to work on the organization that supports those parents, if it's in a church. They're going to try to gain the child's trust and the trust of the parents. And with the child, they're going to begin testing boundaries. How far will this kid let me go? And often these kids are so needy. Sometimes they need, sometimes they need material things. Sometimes they need attention. Sometimes they need emotional support. Sometimes they need somebody to talk to. Those, that's what they're looking for. They know how to spot those kids. 
then they're going to begin testing those boundaries. How far will that kid let me go? And before the kid knows it, they're in over their heads. They're going to introduce accidental nudity and sexualization of the relationship. They're going to begin to talk, tell dirty jokes. They're going to begin to show porn on the phone. They're going to, um, those opportunities for overnights where you walk in on a kid accidentally when they're changing clothes, changing into swimwear, using the restroom. Those opportunities, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and they back out. And they're going to watch for that child's reaction. That's one what they test those boundaries. They're, and they want that child to begin to be desensitized to, to that loss of modesty. Um, they're going to go for inappropriate touch. I know one thing I always had in my policies, what is appropriate and what's inappropriate touch? I want to spell it out. What's, a, what's appropriate touch with preschoolers and children? High fives, fist bumps, um, whatever. If you're going to give a hug, it's going to be a side hug. Men, we tell men not to hold um, children on their laps in their personal area. Um, just and if you are cha- you know changing a diaper, you're going to do it so someone else is around. You're going to have a bathroom policy about <clears throat> how who's allowed to to go in. Is anybody allowed to go in and assist the child in the bathroom? You know, does the door stay open? All these kind of things you need to consider. And you think about it. Well, that's silly, but it's not because that. That works toward those those steps that that groomer takes to gain access to the child. That's the reason you spell it out. So if you see somebody who understands this is what's appropriate, this is what's not appropriate, they cross that line. That's a red flag for you to pay attention to other behaviors. And they ensure the silence of the victim through shame, threats, blame, or withdrawal of meeting needs. And that's one of the first things they're going to do is figure out some way to get that kid quiet. They're going to threaten their parents, their dogs, their brothers and sisters. They're going to threaten to withdraw. If they're, if they're uh, in need of financial help, uh, transportation, scholarships, whatever, um, they're going to, th- that's going to be something that they threaten to take away. And so that child is in a catch-22. What are they going to do? And often the children, the younger children, they don't have the emotional life experience to know what to do. They don't know that this guy is, although he threatens your mom or your, nobody's going to believe you or your mom would be so ashamed, they don't, um, the kids don't necessarily have the, the life experience to recognize that this guy's lying to them. Now, some of the tools that groomers use, gifts, the meeting of needs, we talked about that. Inappropriate affirmation, especially with young girls, they'll talk about, you know, you are so mature for your age. I'd love to see how your, your body is feeling out. You know, you're more mature than the other girls. All these things that make a, make a girl or a young man feel good, if, especially if they're not receiving affirmation anywhere else or they're not fitting in anywhere else. The, um, they offer time. If they're working for young girls, they, they tend to use social media, especially teenage girls. They will pretend to be a teenage boy, and they get in trouble before they know it. Um, they have kid magnet activities or environments. That there's pictures, um, ministry showed show pictures of a, a youth minister who built a, a kid-sized train track in his backyard. Or they have trampolines. They have extensive gaming systems. 
all these things that are lures to get kids into um, into their private space. Forbidden fruit, they offer those things that those kids know they're not supposed to have. Younger kids, it can be letting them watch a Netflix movie that they can't watch at home. Um, sometimes it's alcohol, drugs, porn, or inappropriate media. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure there's lots of things that groomers use. They know how to play the system. They know how to lure kids. They know how to um, get the barriers down with parents. They know how to gain their trust. They know how to work an organization so that if an accusation is made, either the organization brushes under the carpet because they don't want to deal with it, or the organization cannot imagine that this person would have done such an awful thing. Now, what are we going to do in our ministry? What can we do? We sit here and we go, well, we got to have volunteers. How do I know? You can't know 100% that you're raising the awareness of those those, um, methods that groomers use. And when you study case after case of people who do grooming, they follow the same pattern. They may have different tools. Their tools may look different, but they use tools. And so just being aware is crucial. All right. We're gonna these are three steps. This is my three steps. Some place some places have five, some have four. This is my three. Things that your church can do. The first is vetting volunteers. Why should you vet volunteers? You know, we want to think church is a safety bubble. That anybody who comes in has to be righteous and good and holy and no foul intent. But I remind people that Satan walked in the Garden of Eden. So it happens. You want to protect the children. You want to protect the leaders from unfounded accusations, although most accusations tend to be true. And you want to protect your church. I served in Charlotte at a, um, in the Charlotte area at a church for many years that there was a, another a church of a different denomination near us. On Palm Sunday, a man came up in a van told a fifth grade girl he needed help getting flowers out of the van. She was kidnapped, molested, raped. They found her at the end of the day. She was alive. But you know what? 25 years later when I ride by that church, that's what I think about. They were the church that had the media van in the front yard and you don't want to be that church. There are churches now that have for sale signs in their yard because they have incidents that they did not handle well. And they were sued, and they lost everything. Their ministry was totally devastated. You don't want to be that church. So we talked about background checks, and background checks are an important first step, but it cannot be all that you do. You're going to start with a church-approved application for anybody who wants to serve. I wouldn't grandfather people in, unless it was your own mama. I just wouldn't grandfather them in. Church-approved application, you do need signed permission to conduct a background check. That's legal. You're going to conduct reference checks and personal interviews, and those are more and more important. Um, You need to uh, be able to ask folks, tell me about this person's experience working with children in your church or in in an organizational setting. And um, you want to do, you know, you can even ask that question, would you allow this person to babysit your own kids? That's very telling. 
So you want to conduct those reference checks. Some churches will say you need to have a personal, a personal uh, business and a volunteer reference, you know, from three different areas. So you want to try to get as best you can um, a picture of what this person is like. If you're hiring somebody on staff, um, some of the recommendations from Ministry Safe are you get them to sign a blank statement saying that they can check reference, references beyond the references they've listed. Sometimes you'll get a, you know, if you go back and you check with church staff or the people they've served with in the past, you may get a different story <laughs> than the references this person provides. Um, part of that background check, they're going to do a national check of the cr- criminal records check and the sex offenders registry. If they are driving, and this goes for any ministry in your church, including senior adults or whatever. If you have people driving um, people, other people in church vehicles or in their personal vehicles in the name of the church on a church trip or whatever, I would do a, a driver's license check. You want to make sure that they don't have speeding tickets or DWIs or reckless driving stuff that if they had an accident, it's going to come up and show, uh, reflect on, or somebody could come back and sue your church because they were driving in the name of your church. That's a real quick thing there. This is something that blew me away. You know that currently there are, we talk about the small number of people on the sex offenders registry percentage-wise, but out of that small percentage, it still means there are 747,000 registered people on the registered sex offenders registry. So if we want to think that this is not a problem, this is 10% of people who have been caught. It's huge. And less than 4% of charges resulted in a criminal conviction. Um, background checks. Will you remind us how long people stay on that? I think forever. Yeah, it's supposed to be. You can get it expunged, um, but if it if they you know on your thing if you, have you ever been on the sex offenders registry list, then the, if they lie about it and you find out, that gives you a reason to. Um, and sometimes when you ask questions like that, people who have been on the registry or have been charged will opt out, and you need to give people the opt the the opportunity to opt out of the application process and not serve in your youth or children's ministry without question. Um, because if you insist, if you've got a kid in this ministry, and I'm I'm a children's minister, I've told people this before, if you got a kid in the ministry, you got to participate. But if I say that, then that means that somebody who really doesn't need to be in the ministry needs to opt out, who has a past that... Um, I don't, need, I don't necessarily need to know about as long as they're not working with kids and youth. We need to give people the opportunity to opt out. So it's that catch-22. The big thing with this is it's illegal. If you go to court, it shows that you have done some due diligence to protect the kids in your church. Churches today tend to get, hired, uh, get sued for negligent hiring as part of this process where you don't vet volunteers. Negligent hiring, negligent supervision, negligent retention when you know some there's an issue and you keep somebody around and ne- failure to train. Um, it, they cost anywhere from 12 to $20. One of the lists that you have is a resource list that's on our website and a part of that is I have a list of companies that do background checks. I don't, vet, I don't say one's better than the other. You can look at people who use them. 
and um, make your, you need to do your own investigation there. And they should be repeated at least once every three years. If you go to camps or in North Carolina, you have to repeat them every year. Um, but don't go more than three years without repeating that. Let people know up front, every three, at least every three years, you're going to repeat this background check. Budget for it. This is the time of year churches are setting budgets for next year. Put that in your budget. Policies and procedures. Okay, this is sort of a fun thing. I want everybody to close your eyes. I want you to imagine your dream car, boat, truck, van, whatever. Because if you're a woman, you've got a dream kitchen. All right, you got your dream. Pick your color, engine size, the accessory package. When you got it, look at me. All right, look at this sweet boy here. He is 15 years old and he just got his permit and he wants to drive your dream vehicle. He is not, well, let's just say he doesn't even have his permit. He just, he knows how to unlock the door. But North Carolina, he can begin the process of, of learning to drive. But let's say he hasn't been through any classes, he hasn't had any practice or training, and he says, I want to drive your ride. How many of you going to give him the keys? Anybody in here? Often that's what we do with, with church uh, children's and youth ministry leaders. We don't give them any training. We don't give them any practice. We don't tell them about our policies. We don't tell them about the rules of the road. We just hand them a teacher book and just say, go. We're doing them a great disservice. So, But we've got to have some policies and procedures, some systems in place that we can hand them, that we can train them. This is how we're going to operate so that they know what is appropriate and what's inappropriate um, actions and activities to do with kids. So why do we need written policies and procedures? The first thing I ask is how many, and don't call names, how many of you in this room know somebody who thinks the rules don't apply to them? Everybody does. You got one. As soon as I said that, everybody had a name popping. They always smile when I ask this question because everybody knows somebody who thinks the rules don't apply to them. This is why we have written policies and procedures. You may say, well, we're doing our best at our church, but if I ask you to show me a written policy, sometimes I'll go, oh, we used to have one. Oh, here it is. No, it's not on the computer. I can't send you a copy. You know, it's before the Internet. So... You need things written down so that there is clarity and consistency of understanding. You can take it to anybody in the church and say, this is how we operate. I tell people, if you're a ministry leader, one of the values of having written policy and somebody just chooses not to do it or they they question why it is what, you can give them a reason why, but there's somebody that's going to argue with it. And I tell them, take a thumbtack, stick that policy to the wall, and say, you can argue with that policy all day long. I'm going to lunch. That policy can be your best friend. It can also be your worst enemy. But it can be your best friend. It has, hopefully, has been voted on by the church or your church governing body. So it has some teeth, some authority. And by having written policies and procedures in place that are in evidence that you are following them, it can be a deterrent to a prospective abuser. Remember, they're going to go where the barriers are the lowest. They're going to go where the pickings are the easiest. And so if you have a systems in place to protect the kids in your church, 
chances are, unfortunately, they're going to go to another church, but they're not going to mess with yours. Now, who can serve? We talked about the two two by six. I'd say if you're a pastor, sometimes you wish you had a two by six under your desk. That would take care of a lot of your problems. But for today, the two by six means this. Two non-related persons, two people who are non-related by marriage, some people non-related by family. That can get to be tough if you're in a family church. But the idea is that even if you have a husband and wife who insist on working together, you're going to have a third person over the age of 18 working with them. Recognizing that you can have youth serve in your children's ministry, but they cannot be counted in the two adult rule because legally they are minors. There's a six-month rule for members, one year for active attenders. I know millennials today tend to not be joiners. So this six-month rule for members can be a, a sort of a, it can be a thorn. So you can have a one-year rule. Now, what you have to understand with these things, they're not law. It would be sometimes so much easier if they were law. They're best practices. And if you want to show that your church uses best practices, these are some of the things you're going to go by. Some areas that you're going to be, main points that you're going to be caring about in terms of uh, prevention of sex abuse were opportunities for molestation to happen. You're going to have a check-in and release system. That way you, you have a way of knowing that the person who picks up a child is the person who has authority to pick up that child. It can be something you make matching tags. You can have a sign-in sheet. You can have an electronic check-in system. The price of those are going down. But if you have five to ten kids in your church, you may say, we don't need that. But that you need some kind of system in place, be it matching tickets. I had a little laminator that would make like driver's license size tags that put little clips on them and they matched. You can do it by numbers. You can do it by names. But the biggest thing is to have some kind of system in place so that you know that the person who picks up the child has authority to do so. Sometimes you may have issues with parents having um, custody, who has custody of the child. Dad comes up 10 minutes before service is out. Child goes, Daddy, Daddy. So what's your first response going to be? Daddy. But that daddy may not have the authority to have that child. And if you have that system in place and you have not used it, you are in trouble. Um, Bathroom care and diapering. This is a place where uh, churches can get in trouble. Have it spelled out. Who can change? And often, now men don't get too excited. Often in many churches, men are not allowed to change diapers. And the men go, yay. But um, whoever's changing those diapers, you need to be in an area. I've seen churches where I go in and they've got a little cubby. They want to provide some privacy for the child. But what they've done is provided privacy for the groomer. Or the pedophile. So have it out in the open where people, somebody else can see what you're doing. Um, you know, bathroom care. Years ago, I would have to take preschoolers to assist them in the bathroom. What I should have done was made sure that somebody was standing at the doors. I went in to assist the child. We were in what was originally youth area, so it had two, two gang bathrooms, you know, the three bathrooms. That outside door always stayed open. And if I had to take care of a child, help a child on the potty, I always went in a stall where if I bent down, my fanny was hanging out. Somebody knew I was in there. Anybody could have, that door stayed open. Anybody could have seen what I was doing. If they're older kids, 
Some ple- ple- some uh, churches will have uh, an adult escort the child to the bathroom, go open the door to the bathroom, make sure nobody else is in there. They remain outside while the child goes in. So the biggest thing is avoiding that appearance of impropriety, avoiding anybody having a reason to question what you're doing and are your volunteers, what are they doing? Have it spelled out so that anybody who works with the children in your church knows this is what we're going to do. Classroom discipline, something as simple. I've seen churches where they will set the child outside the classroom. You can't do that. You know, classroom discipline is, an, you know, you need to spell out what is appropriate discipline and what is not. We don't shame. We don't yell. We don't, um, you know, you can give them a timeout, a thinking time, but you don't isolate where they're with another adult. An adult would never take them outside. You know, you used to get taken outside the door and they just clean your clock, yell at you. You don't do that. And so have it spelled out. What is appropriate? What's appropriate touch, inappropriate touch? We talked about that. Um, churches today need to think about small group. How many churches in here do small groups? Off-site small groups. This is something you need to think about today. Um, and we're, I've got, again, it's not a, whoops. See, I thought I had it. Well, we need to think about with this, it's just a series of questions, and I hope I put it in the handout. If not, I can send it to you. Is the space physically safe? Has somebody gone in and make sure there's no medicine? If it's in a home, no medicines, no guns, that kind of thing. Something made of glass that it could drop and a child could get hurt. So is the space actually physically safe? Are parents comfortable with the child care provider if the group is you're meeting at somebody's home and child care is provided? Is this a church-authorized event? Whose insurance will cover uh, financially if somebody is injured or child's injured? Does the church need to be notified in the meeting? And if it is considered a church-sponsored event, will the child's will the church's uh, child protection policy be enforced? That means you're going to have two adults that you're paying over the age of 18 taking care of these kids. That's why a lot of churches are either um, the parents are rotating care or they are just like letting the parents hire their own child care and um, paying the parents back for the child care. So they kind of take themselves out of that step. But these are things that churches need to think about. And when you ask people, I I asked somebody at Lifeway this question, they don't have a clue. I mean, this is something that churches, each church, that's the reason this is a series of questions. Your church needs to wrestle with these questions. Your policy, like I said, can be your best friend. It can be your worst enemy if you are not enforcing what you have written. So you've got to decide up front how you are going to enforce what you've written. On the premises, you're going to have area supervision um, and you're going to have clear sight lines. You want to make sure every door in every classroom, including youth and adults, have glass that you can see in. Used to drive me crazy as a children's minister as soon as church was over. I released children to their parents, but the parents would let the kids run all over the church. And the first place, y'all know what I know, what I mean, the first place the kids went was to the adult area where the lights were all out because that's the place they didn't normally get to go. 
They would run up and down the hall and in and out of the classrooms. That's a prime area for a child to get molested, if you think about it. So you want to have clear sight lines into those rooms. Some churches, I don't know, I haven't heard, read anything about it. Some churches even talk about when a session is over, the door's locked, so nobody can go in. There's pros and cons for locking the door. Are you locking somebody out or are you locking somebody in? But um, that's something your church needs to wrestle with. But you need clear sight lines. This is a great place, area supervision. You may have people on your security team who really don't want to teach kids but can be involved in children's ministry by being the person who walks the halls. One of the things I did as a children's minister is I walked the hall and I looked in the classroom windows. If I walked into the classroom, I disrupted everything that was happening in the classroom. But I could randomly walk multiple times on a Sunday morning, walk through and look and see what's going on in the classroom. I knew. And so that's why um, having that area supervision is important. One of the things that drove me crazy at the last church I was at was um, kids would come out of the sanctuary. Parents would let the kids go to the bathroom. Well, these two bathrooms were right, the front door was right here. Anybody could walk in. And nobody went in to check the bathrooms before the kids went in. I couldn't get anybody to stay out in the foyer. Somebody needed to be in the foyer. You could still watch, hear the service. And as a kid before now, today, I know so much more now than I did seven years ago. But what I would do is have somebody in the foyer, if a child wanted to go to the bathroom, before that child went into the bathroom, I would check and make sure it was empty. And then I would make sure the child went right back to their parents. Because this church was a church that had been added on, and there were doors and doors and doors. And nobody was paying attention. I would find kids that were all over the church, where they had come down with these little back halls and things, unsupervised. They thought it was big fun. I saw it as a danger. And the parents were clueless. I thought, well, your kid's not back 15 minutes. Somebody should have gone and looked. But that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother um, conference. You want to secure entries. Most churches I go in now, within 10 minutes of the start of service, they're locking doors, so there's only limited access to the building inside. You need to plan before it happens for noncompliance. What are you going to do for those people who think the rules don't apply to them? Because often those people who think the rules... who um, deal when you're dealing with non-compliance you have to think is this person a groomer i've got these rules in place to protect these kids they keep pushing these boundaries is this somebody i need to be paying attention to and then have those appropriate volunteer child volunteer and child ratios these are some that are suggested if they're in your handout now if you go to a daycare setting or a school setting these numbers are going to be larger. The ratios are going to be greater. The reason they're kind of small here is because you're dealing with volunteers who may not have teaching, uh, professional teaching experience. And so that's why. And understanding where it says one to two, that still means you're going to have that one is two. So even if you have one kid, you're going to have two adults. But you also want to consider your max group size because you can have three teachers in a classroom, but if you've got 25 kids, 25 year-olds, three teachers can't do that. So you need to increase the numbers. But that's also where a kid can get hurt because you, you as an adult cannot physically manage that number of kids. All right. We've got just a few minutes, and I'm going to go through this quickly. What happens if 
you become aware of an allegation of abuse, either within your church or where something's happened outside and you've heard about it, what are you going to do? The first thing you need to know is North Carolina is a must-report state. There is no clergy exemption. You hear about it, you got to tell. If you don't, it is a crime. You can be charged with a very serious misdemeanor that um, includes if a, if a child were hurt because you did not report and it became aware that you knew about it, you could go to jail for several months and pay a pretty stiff fine. So the state takes it seriously. You should report with, within the first 24, hour, 24 to 48 hours of receiving an allegation. This does not mean you report to the pastor and think you're done. This does not mean you report to the deacons you think you're done. You're only done if you've reported to DSS or the police. You personally. You can get the pastor or a deacon or somebody to go with you as you make the call. But you need to make that call. It is your responsibility. You say it's to DSS and not to the... You call... Okay. My son-in-law does this in Union County. He's a detective. And I asked him for clarification. He said, your first call is to DSS, Department or, or, or Child Protection Services. If you cannot get hold of them or you feel like a child is in imminent danger of being hurt or molested again, call the police. But he said, that, that's the order. The big thing is that you want it to go on record that you have reported it. Recognize that often only about 50% of allegations go to um, where somebody's charged with a crime. Sometimes the victim is very young. Sometimes it's a, um, but they say less than, less than 7% of reported allegations are false. So that's not an issue. But sometimes DSS does not have enough information to move forward. But that still does not mean you do not have an obligation, both legally and morally, to report. Ideally, you will create and use a response team in your church. This means you're going to have somebody in your church that you know can hold confidences, that also is going to follow through with what needs to be done. They're going, if it's, especially if it's something that happened with one of your teachers, volunteers, or staff members, you're going to have somebody who documents what's happened from the date from the first step on. They're going to make sure the police is called. They're going to make sure your insurance company's called because they have a dog in this fight. And so you're going to have somebody who listens with compassion to the allegation and documents it. You're going to have somebody who's willing to take those next steps and offer counseling or, or uh, financially support someone to seek counseling. One of the organizations that's here as part of our Baptist network is called CareNet. They have a series of counselors or through a network of counselors, counselors throughout the state to help your churches, as, uh, Baptist churches, with the process of finding counselors. If it's a church staff member or volunteer who has been accused, that person should be removed from service immediately until that allegation is resolved. One of the things you can get sued for is negligent retention where you keep where an allegation is made and that person abuses after you have received an allegation. You will not have a, stand, a leg to stand on in court. 
So that person with as much dignity as you can manage needs to be removed at least temporarily from service. That protects your, your congregants and it protects you as a church. Um, part of what the handouts that you have here is um, like I shared with you is a resource list with the information. Um, you also have a, a list of resources we have created that are on the ncbaptist.org uh, childhood page. I was getting requests from churches wanting copies of Can You Send Me a Policy? And I wasn't comfortable doing that. My fear was that we'd put their name on it and not really wrestle with what was in the policy. You can't enforce what you don't know is there. And so we created a resource called a Framework for Developing Policy and Procedures. Real sexy. But it's um, just a series of questions. It's, it, uh, again, I don't want to tell you what to put in your policy. But I want these, there's a ton of things that you can put in your policy. Uh, the things we've talked about today are to prevent set, the opportunity for grooming for sexual abuse. But there are other issues that are safety issues that you may want to consider. Something as simple as can you have hot beverages in the classroom? What time should teachers be there? That's one thing that we that's one thing that we I re- didn't really cover. For those of you who are in children's ministry, those teachers who come in two minutes after start time and they just keep you guessing and give you gray hair. They drive you crazy. But what if you presented it that this is an outreach issue? What do parents think when they come to a class? A guest who come to your church are going to come early. What happens when they come into your classroom and there's no teachers there? What happens if there's only one teacher there, but your policy says you need two teachers there? So there's two different ways to frame this problem. So your policy, again, can become your friend. But that framework for creating policies will help you think through some of these points. As I've shared with you, I have spent six to eight months pretty much dealing with this issue exclusively in our state. And um, Dolly, Noah, Tom Bean work for Baptist on Mission. They do camps. And so it is a very important issue for them. We are going to do a tour of um, 10 or 11, I think 10 different, 10 or 11 different trainings that will be more extensive than what you've gotten here today, about three hours long. Um, This yellow sheet tells you the date and where it's going to be. We'll offer them twice during the day, once in the morning and then again in the evening (laughs) with a meal involved. And so um, there's some of this that we're, we're just, in fact, we had a meeting about it last week. If you want more information, we have this formalized. If you will text the word safety to 313131, then when we get things formalized, we will send you that information. All right. I'm a, as I pass out the evaluations, I'm going to give you time to ask questions about what you've heard today. Are there things that you have questions about? Oh, yeah. If you had a wisdom one where you had to remove someone under suspicion, what do you say to the other coworkers and stuff just wisely? I remember being a children's director and I just like wasn't the wisest at the time. I don't even know what I said, but probably something really stupid. <laughs> Why would y'all all right. I mean the elders knew what was going on, but yeah. but this person was like, you know, the one director and we literally yeah, but you felt like for some reason that you needed to remove them yeah, from service. We did. We did. All right. We had every reason to. All right. What would you say? 
I'm going to let you listen to some of the wisdom of the room. You had a person that you needed to remove. Uh, as they were a volunteer leader, but they were a leader. How did you, once they were removed, what did you tell others in your organization about why they were removed? They're failing to meet the requirements of their position. Okay, did you hear that? They meet the requirements of their position. They're failing to meet the requirements of their sure. position. That's all we need. That's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. The big thing is that you, you make sure that it's about the job and not them. And the protection of the children. Yeah. Okay. Okay, who's the second one? I want to ask you more How about reversing stuff? We're in a church plant situation, and we have some people working in the that probably shouldn't be, and they have some members, and then we have to do the best practices. Wisdom, and I guess it just goes back to the policy to back it up. Yep. And this is where um, the interviews yeah. become so crucial, where you need to be, um, I mean, it's almost like somebody's applying for a job. Anybody in here got their own business, got some wisdom they could share about um, how they would interview someone? Okay. What about you helping? You. Okay, I, I addressed this in my, this is the way I addressed it. Um, when it came to children like under the age of two, I really wanted adults in the classroom simply because if a youth minor picked up a child, which is what you do in that age group, and you drop them, you're in trouble if there's an injury. So for me personally, they had to be at least 18 to work in like two and up. And then I had uh, restrictions like six, they had to be at least 16 to work in preschool. Um, the biggest thing is you look at, you know, what your, the si- you have to look at the size of your church, your volunteer base, that kind of thing, but recognize also that they can't be counted in the two, two person role. Um, you know, when it, if it was a 12 year old, I would really, I, I would struggle. I didn't let young, young ones like that work. Video camera usage in a church. Yeah, that's that's becoming more and more of an issue. Um, And this is just an opinion. I haven't done any research. Um, In fact, there's a guy here. He's not in the room, but he he can answer. There's a church that's just full of policemen, and this this church is like phenomenal. I mean, it's like a command center. But as far as cameras and stuff go, but cameras. Can again, it can be one of those things that can be your best friend and it can be your worst enemy. Um, it can be your best friend if you are somebody is, is watching them in, in live real time because the idea of it is to watch what's happening in the classroom and in the event that something bad is happening, somebody could step in. Um, it protects volunteers at the same point from unfounded allegations. I hear stories where somebody comes in and has accused somebody of something. And when you go, well, let's look at the camera, especially if it's a guest, they're out to scam the church. So it can work in your favor, but you need somebody who is monitoring those cameras in, in real time. Um, because, again, if you videoed it, you see it happening and nobody's there to stop it, or you can be in trouble. So I know I was in a church recently where they put in cameras in the nursery because somebody said you needed cameras. But I asked, why did you put cameras in the nursery? They didn't have a, because somebody told us we should. But when we talked about the things that you need to consider with cameras, it was like, oh, wait a minute. So 
you know, there is a church in Florida right now that is in huge, huge trouble where in their weekday program they had cameras. Um, they had a young man who was, I don't know if he was a volunteer or one of the weekday teachers, was regularly taking young boys to the bathroom and molesting them. They had video, weeks and weeks and weeks of video evidence of this happening, but nobody was monitoring the video. And so this church is in huge, huge trouble. So it depends on, some churches have them just in the hallway, because if you're interested, if your focus is on active shooters or somebody who should not be in a hallway, that's why they want them in the, but, and, and some people have them in a, in a classroom. If I had them in a classroom, I would only have them if they were monitored in real time. So. So you have several groups that are meeting in your church that are not all the homeschool groups. Right. Okay. Would you suggest they follow your policy or like we have some who have their own? I'll, Where does that? I would. Um, that's a question you have to ask yourself. I would ask it in. Um, in a conversation with my insurance company, yes. with their insurance company, um, and just look for their, what they call a best practice. Thank you.